0: This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up, and then two main items of news, usually picked by myself and Eugene. We're also going to miss Alec.
1: Yeah, Alec. I miss that guy. Yeah. He left yesterday.
0: Well, yesterday was his last day. At the office. And then today he has left the city. Yeah. Returned home.
1: Favorite moment about Alec?
0: beating you guys at 2K and FIFA.
1: Man, yeah. That was a bittersweet moment.
0: Obviously for me, that's a bit of a joke. I did really appreciate working with him and all of the work that he's done with us over this past month.
1: We got my card. That was nice. Yeah. What did you write?
0: Appreciated having you here. It's been a pleasure. Something like that. Interesting. Did you not read it? You wrote after me. I felt
1: it'd be weird to read it. I don't know why. I thought it was private, -private. semi-private. No, I
0: actually, I gave you the option to not even write your own message. I said you could just sign your name.
1: That was weird. Why? Why would that be weird? As in you don't have confidence I could write something meaningful. I was a little bit offended, actually. Now I think about it. Now that you've brought it up, (laughs) I was kind of... You can't
0: be offended after the fact. I was saving all of us time And we could all have signed the same message. I would
1: have not done that. All right. I wrote something along the lines that, hey, this next generation is not fucked because there's intelligent articulate.
0: That's so anecdotal, though. You can't just use Alec, one individual, one 22-year-old from the UK to decide that the entire generation is not fucked.
1: Mm, I mean, Willie was on point. So there's two... 22 year olds. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. There's a lot more. Anyways, out there. That, that's super disrespectful. I don't mean that in some sort of negative way. It's just,
0: I mean, I think what, I'm
1: trying to push against media bias. Okay.
0: I think what you would want to say more seriously is that we learn something from someone who's a good chunk younger than us. And maybe we don't have that much exposure to his age group. I would, I've
1: always been telling people this, that, it comes to a point in time when you lose connection because it becomes weird for you to hang out people that are too young. Yes. You know what I mean? That's what well, it comes down to. I think we talked about that in one like of the previous It's like weird to hang, out
0: of, hang outside of work just casually that yeah. way. But in this situation where we're working with someone in the office. It's yeah. It's really good.
1: I want to talk about an event I went to yesterday. Where'd you go? The Nifty Conference.
0: Oh, well, so I just went yesterday? to this My goodness.
1: developer hackathon for gaming and NFTs, non-fungible tokens. So it's crypto related. Maybe I should go back and explain what an NFT is. So a non-fungible token is something that has a unique identity. So like if you use money, right? That's fungible. Like whether Sharice has $10 or I have $10, it serves the same purpose. So the best way of looking at a non-fungible token is kind of along the lines of like, something collectible or something you trade where it could be a limited edition, it's unique and can't be replicated. As you know, within the gaming world, it's big because actually you would know better than I do. It'd be like, hey, you're playing a game and there's this Warhammer that you've just picked up because you've conquered the boss and it would be as though that Warhammer was super unique and special. And then soon that becomes this thing you can trade, you can sell, etc.
0: Actually... There's a indie platform called Steam. I don't know if you know this. It's like the a, video
1: one, right? Yeah. yeah video yeah.
0: game platform called Steam. It's massive. I know you don't really play video games. I do so play video games. I just don't that. play
1: in a social context.
0: Okay. Yeah. So when you play games, you like any games on Steam, you get trading cards. Yeah. And you can collect those trading cards and they're kind of randomized into packs and you can trade those packs with other people and you can actually eventually turn those packs into real money.
1: Who is the person that eventually exchanges for money? Like that, I, that's what I'm curious about.
0: Someone can buy it for real money. Like if you will is find that, a buyer.
1: Is that legal? Like within the rules yes. of the game? Yes. It's,
0: it's not. It's within Steam, yeah. which is interesting because it's not even within the rules of any individual video game yeah. but it's this idea that throughout Steam you can collect like packs of different cards and if you manage to like collect these rare packs, then you can sell those for money yeah so to people of, who are interested.
1: One of the most interesting things that arose from the panel was someone's was like, hey if you look at a generation upcoming let's say a 10, 10 year old, what's the likelihood of a 10 year old having a bank account? Probably pretty low. Yeah. But do they have accounts where they're collecting items? Definitely. And do those items carry value? They could at some point in time carry value. So what's the difference between having $100,000 in in in-game items versus having a bank account if they're liquid and you can trade them, you can make money off of them. So that was really enlightening.
0: Yeah, that is enlightening.
1: Because that's the one thing right now is like, I would only assume whether it's Steam and even before World of Warcraft when you were mining for gold... It's not weird. It's just that it's not necessarily meant to be a very liquid market. Like you have to go through hoops to get paid, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's that really what it really is. That is really
0: interesting because remember two days ago during the team lunch, we were just sort of talking casually. And then Chris Lim, Macon photographer, was talking about how he used to hustle DVDs and that when Kill Bill came out, he sold it for a double So it's kind of like the modern era of that.
1: Everyone is always curious about whether cryptocurrencies have sort of this currency element to it. But the reality is like value is what you sort of ascribe to and what someone's willing to pay for it, right? Yeah. So
0: I mean, people have been selling exclusive video game accounts. Like if you grind really hard and you level up something, you can sell that. It's exactly what you're saying. It's just what people place value in.
1: What do we put up this past week?
0: We had the second vibora episode go up and the second Detroit installment.
1: Yeah, actually that kind of worked out in a weird way. It was all second installments.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, it's much easier when it's like the second time through Yeah. for something. And then we have a story. I'm pretty happy that we're getting up um, tomorrow. Should be for 40s and no. shorties.
1: So yeah, in passing, I know earlier today you brought up this thing and it was kind of alluding, oh, did you read this in your kind of air quotes expose on Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop brand? Yeah. Right?
0: I still haven't finished reading it. It's long. In in all honesty.
1: So the reason I want to bring it back up is I saw something on Twitter that alluded to this.
0: The whole reason I even saw this article's existence was on Twitter.
1: The tweet I had seen was by Lee Jin and Lee Jin is a consumer investment partner at A16Z. What she said was, I think goop is popular not because women seriously believe that quartzed water confers energy or that they need a jade egg, hopefully, but because she, and broadly wellness, taps into a universal desire to feel cared for and fussed over, to be the object of someone's concern. She's definitely on the extreme end of a spectrum of unnecessary and potentially harmful products, which I'm not endorsing. But the vitriol directed at Goop seems a bit extreme. Consumer culture is all about buying things we don't really need but can make us feel better. Take, for instance, the entire vitamin industry or in the 90s, low-fat everything. In the past decade, yoga leggings. Yoga has been done for thousands of years without special clothes. What I found interesting, and I was thinking about it too, because I actually replied to this. I was thinking, hey, you know what? I think that she's not inherently off-base at all, but I just think that the reason why it's so polarizing is I think Gwyneth Paltrow generally has a squeaky clean image. Would you agree?
0: I would agree. And I don't think she's off base. Like, I'm not, I'm never an advocate for being mean or cruel to people, but I do think that she makes dubious claims that should be clarified.
1: If only you could see how how wide open Charisse's eyes were. Yeah,
0: I was dubious. Entirely raised. And yeah, people should.
1: I didn't really look at the negative comments, to be honest. People
0: should take care of themselves and buy things if they think those things will make them. Feel better about but, themselves, but, but you can't be like, in terms of medical issues, make I agree. statements that are totally
1: untrue. My beef is that when you have that size of a platform and visibility, I think there has to be responsibility. You've known yeah. this pretty much the existence of this podcast is like, dude, if you have scale, like you have yeah, to use it for I think the right... you have
0: more responsibility. And also, these things are really expensive. I think there's that too, right? Like where it becomes more scammy when something that doesn't work also costs a ton
1: of money yeah well my other thing too is that why are we i guess in regards to the progression of culture and society why are we so enamored with the band-aid solution this is maybe real philosophical because i was i said this too i'm like if people lack the ability to care for themselves is there a solution for that where it's internalized versus it's solutions from the external. Because right now people are looking at goop for a solution versus like, hey, maybe maybe the solution is internal. I don't know. Because the thing is like it does try to suggest certain health benefits, right? And I'm I mean I take vitamins. I
0: mean I think but I also
1: take vitamins based on scientific research.
0: I understand the appeal of imagining purchasing a product can be like flipping a switch and making your life better or making you healthier in some way because that is an easier thing to do than to commit to running 30 minutes for five days a week. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So there's that. That's one factor. And then also I think we're just used to the idea that there has to be a solution out there that we just haven't come to Do you to think us. that
1: it's the desire to to find a solution externally? Like we always find Someone else to solve our problems for us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes even um, at Macon for our processes, I believe that it's not that we need another digital tool that will fix this. It's something that we need to evaluate and how we are strategizing and doing things. You want to get into it?
1: Sure. So my subject is Nike says it's $250 running shoes will make you run much faster. What if that's actually true? So this emanated from a New York Times article and I'll start right at the base. So Nike released the Zoom Vaporfly 4%, a shoe that was tested to ensure runners could improve their speeds by upwards of 4%. And they actually had a big campaign around this. Someone tried to break a marathon world record and do a sub two hour marathon. Unfortunately, it failed, but it would... They got really close. Very close and made for great sort of sports entertainment. Yeah. Sports is entertainment, but I think it was just the way that it was created was less of a actual race and more like a race against myself.
0: It was pretty exciting. I think it's not just a race against yourself, but like a race for humanity's sake. Like maybe a human can do this.
1: The $250 shoe features a carbon fiber shank that captures and releases energy like a slingshot. Oh my God. <laughs> I, have, uh, I, I, I I
0: know. Bad, I can bad, see.
1: Bad typo. The, in the, 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 in w- the
0: notes, Eugene wrote, Capturals and releases energy like a slong shot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like a slong shot. Okay, sorry. that's embarrassing. All right. I don't know why my, my Nobody
0: sees these notes. It's fine.
1: They need to know they need to know that I messed up though. All right. <laughs> what? I don't Continue. know why I don't to know give why context. my context. I'm just gonna start my reading spell your chat. notes. Okay. To give context, if you ran a three hour marathon, which is typically a gold standard for amateur runners. With the shoes, you'd be clocking in at two hours and 53 minutes. So about a seven minute savings. At this 4%. is a,
0: this is the standard male runner time.
1: Yeah. The New York Times analyzed the stats provided by Strava, a fitness app and social media platform for runners and cyclists alike, who I don't know if people were following, but a few months ago they actually came under scrutiny because people could look at these heat maps. Mm-hmm. And they soon realize that, hey, this weird. Why are these heat maps in the middle of nowhere? And they ended up being semi-secret, secret U.S. military it's hilarious bases. Hilarious though. But yeah.
0: the thing about Strava is, it's used by very
1: hardcore, hardcore people. Yeah.
0: Like, do you use it?
1: No, no, no. I don't. I don't partake in those types of sports. Yeah, because right?
0: it's like running, cycling, swimming, like individual sports. And these people are publicly publishing their data. Yeah. And so this is an interesting point, not related to the main point of this article. But because of this app's existence, the New York Times reporters just had this big database to work with. Continue. So the New York Times created a bunch of infographics.
1: The New York Times created some pretty interesting and, and very simple to understand infographics that put the shoe against several different measures. Some of the categories they had focused on were... A statistical model based on runners' age, genders, race histories, and other information to measure the effect of the shoes. Compare changes in race times amongst groups of runners who ran the same pairs of races. So like if Sharice and I all ran the same race, how does the difference of my shoes impact that? They also measure the finish times after runners switch to new shoes. So for example, if you were running and you had chosen a new pair of shoes for this particular race... Relative to your previous. And they looked at how common it was to set a personal record when using these shoes. So I think in general, like these stats are probably less of the thing I want to focus on because the reality of the study done by the New York Times was that, yes, it does improve your performance.
0: They do say, you know, there are certain limitations to the data we have. But in general, we can say that the shoes, the actual shoes and not other factors contributed
1: to better performance. Yeah, I highly recommend if you're like a sneaker nerd, like this is really interesting and fascinating. Yeah.
0: And it's interesting because like very 538 style, the data they yeah, did yeah. and splicing it and looking at how many ways can we split this set and see the results. And it it all consistently wound up showing that the vapor fly four percent resulted in some kind of improvement, which is so interesting.
1: The reason why I found this worth talking about was. It's really fascinating because in the world of sportswear and sneakers and whatnot, Nike's typically kind of seen as a marketing company, first and foremost. So
0: I came prepared for this because I saw your notes in advance. Mm-hmm. And I am not gonna argue with you about right now. I do agree that currently Nike is very much a
1: marketing I think it's traditionally been
0: PR. But that's uh, not true.
1: You don't think so? You don't think they've traditionally been the best branded and the best marketed?
0: But their origin story is based on performance. Of course.
1: No, I'm not doubting that. But I think that at some point in time, there was a flippening where they soon became someone that was very flashy and very good at storytelling. And I also have to say that just because of your performance, I think a lot of people perceive Nike to be the best product. But if you look at what else is kind of in the mix, like I would say in general for a while there... I mean, this is anecdotal. I think it
0: would be inaccurate though to say something has changed and they're refocusing back on performance though because oh, no, that no, no, is no. in their legacy. No,
1: that's correct. I think that maybe I need to clarify this a little bit better. But for example, I remember remember a few podcasts ago we looked at the Nike Brazil ad. Yes. Like that to me yes. is very marketing yes. centric. That is a representation of how these people understand how to tell a story.
0: Yeah. And anyways, yeah. There's,
1: there's no talk about how good this jersey is Moisture wicking, etc. Okay, sure. So I think yes. that it's we're in agreement. And I think it's more of a like a cheek and tongue. Hey, they're a marketing company that does shoes. Yeah. Look at it more like that. Okay,
0: fine. I accept it. I just don't... I agree that Nike now is seen more as a great marketing company for all of their products. And we do talk a lot about their campaigns. We also talked about their Be True campaign before, which is nothing related to anything exactly tangible about the shoe. But Nike obviously has serious departments dedicated to finding out how a shoe can help your performance better.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
0: they don't really play up those things.
1: So, to that point, what I find interesting is that in the world of sports, what's one thing that has become very big as of late? And that's data, right? Mm-hmm. Like you look at moneyball, mm-hmm. basketball, most American sports have a very strong statistical layer. But what's interesting,
0: relatively new, you could say.
1: Relatively new. But on that same note, how often are these products that are meant for athletes, how often do they actually involve some sort of like statistical measure that are like, hey, you know what? This should allow you to do that.
0: But you know what's such a weird thing that the article also mentions is that sometimes regulatory boards in sports disapprove of products that in too much enhance a human ability. And and it mentions, you know, um like certain golf balls were banned for flying too straight or these footballs were bl- banned because the substance on the outside allowed players to catch them better, which is a thing I haven't really sorted out in my head like technically if we just allow the ball to be used in all games with all athletes then wouldn't Everything it make the game better? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which I think now we're coming to a point in time where sports traditionally has been at its peak in terms of entertainment value. It didn't have to really compete against too many people, especially live sports, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that you look at it now and sports will need to reinvent themselves, right? We saw with VAR, we talked about it a few podcasts ago. So that part is really interesting to me because despite the fact that these are performance products, they never really stated a performance claim versus, you know, this particular 4% and also APL was like, oh, we can help you jump. APL is a a basketball shoe brand slash running shoe brand that when they first released, they were banned from the NBA because players were able to jump Mm -hmm. apparently Mm -hmm. three inches higher.
0: I think there's this bit of a glorification still of what can the human body do on its own. And I think that will eventually, that mindset will have to change as technology and products just improve. And so this idea was that if shoes or clothing are statistically proven to give an edge, it becomes a tool almost. It becomes, I don't want to say cheating, but do you know what I mean? Like This thing helped you more than what you actually have the ability to do.
1: I think actually I don't really care that much about what effect equipment has on your performance. I honestly, as an amateur athlete, that plays or used to play at a high level. Like I used to care more. Now I don't.
0: But I think that what I just said answers why companies might've been hesitant to push their products like that to make, to make public campaigns on that subject.
1: Beyond that, what I also think is interesting is that there's a real sort of unification of industrial design that I think is, is being promoted here too, because it's like actual form and function. Like, I think for the longest time, we saw a lot of these products have a an assumed function, but you could never really pin it down to like how successful they actually were, Where whereas the form was already there, right? But then now as you're entering this sort of interesting intersection where performance in itself requires a level of aesthetic, like I think anything that's top of the line anything that's high performing generally has a particular aesthetic that's associated with it i mean you look at the the shoe itself the 4% and it's super bulbous but that's in part because of the carbon fiber right but and i like shank. it yeah that's what i mean it's like interesting because the the style has now been immortalized because it actually serves a you know it's a it's you could also it's like immortalized as part of nike's design history because it actually you know, was the first shoe they say that you could do 4%, you could do 4% faster than, you know, what you were previously running. So that's what I'm actually pretty interested and excited about. And I, I wonder if these claims will continue to be promoted more in the light of a lot of sort of subtle things happening. But
0: right? you know, it's interesting that we talked about goop in the intro because
1: yeah. actually that is kind of weird.
0: If more, if more athletic brands come out and make these sort of statements about their products, I would even more so want research that proves it because anyone could say that, right? Like 2%, 1%, like just make the numbers small enough. So it sounds believable. And I think that's dangerous.
1: I'm very excited to see how this in itself could have a subtle impact on that sort of intersection of performance and fashion, because you know, those Zoom vapor flies, like you've seen people wear them in a fashion context, right?
0: I used to really dislike this. Yeah. As in, well, I would never say something to someone out on the street. But
1: you just hate people wearing performance shoes?
0: It just, it just seems to defeat the purpose but of then, the performance factor. Yeah. Like this thing was made to be great at what it does. And it just so happens to look great too, which is a plus. But when you only use it for it looking great, it seems
1: yeah, disingenuous. But, but I'm just interested in the aesthetic. I think the aesthetic is going to drive forward something else.
0: I guess if someone wants to spend $250 on Vaporfly 4% and that never that even run in them,
1: these days? then not.
0: you can't stop them from doing that. I guess I, I'm being an old fart to say, like, if you yeah. buy them, you should run in them.
1: Yeah. But in general, I think it's going to be, like I said, this is, this is going to be really interesting. You just need a certain platform. Cause to use an example, and, and it also involves Nike, like, you're familiar with the whole quote unquote tech wear look, right? Yeah. And I'm very curious to hear or people, people's perspective of how much of tech wear's, RISE is based off the fact that Erlson came in and started doing ACG. Because Errolson and acronym have been around for a while. Sometimes you just need a big enough platform for you to push forward a trend.
0: That is an interesting question.
1: So I'm making this leap here where... Follow along.
0: Okay. Following. Yeah.
1: Physical sports, as we know it, need to reinvent themselves. They will need to allow athletes to have some sort of edge, right? This will... Relax the standards for equipment and what you can and cannot use. High performance in itself is an aesthetic, and this aesthetic will trickle down into the fashion world.
0: I like this theory.
1: Yeah, I have tons of theories.
0: Well, this one is one of the sound ones. What, <laughs> what does
1: that mean? I really like these sort of cause and effect relationships because I think they kind of exist quite often. And, you know, a good example is. Vans had a really, really good quarter or year, whatever it was. They just did really well.
0: This year, this past quarter.
1: Yeah, whatever it is, just whatever period of time. Okay. But now they might have the wind taken out of their sails because of all these trade tariffs coming in. And obviously where are Vans shoes made? I mean, China.
0: Oh. So there's
1: all these cool things that are... I don't know if cool is the right word, but you have to understand that how the world reacts to one another. Yeah. I think that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually that is really interesting how how the US's trade decisions could impact
1: certain brand's popularity well, or what sales was results. Interesting was like a, a very early on when we were kind of explaining make and I was always like, yeah, like I'm I'm always really interested to hear and see what happens when for example, let's say there's a footwear factory district in Vietnam and there's a big massive fire and fifty factories get wiped out. What does that mean for footwear? But you kind of see it. I mean, you see it with electronics, like, oh, there was a flood and now we are behind on RAM. Yep. And then what does that mean? More expensive phones, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So it I it's not really an original idea now that I think of it. I, I think I just like Okay, obviously like this is it. how
0: the world works, but the tariffs are a, not a small piece of news, yeah. right? Like, it is quite significant. And so it's not crazy to imagine that there will be economical ramifications on companies such as Vans.
1: Yeah.
0: And being who we are, we are interested in the well-being of companies such as Vans.
1: Mm, actually, that's weird.
0: Not interested as in, like, personally You're, benefited, but we are interested in knowing about.
1: Yes, Sorry. thank you.
0: Not, yeah, not interested like we like... have investment, but this, this is...
1: I was Rel- like, "Are you? A, are you a VF stockholder? No, Did you not disclose what I mean, something?" Because like
0: obviously the trade tariffs more seriously impact American farmers, but not we're not here talking about like soybeans. Corn, yeah, I'm
1: talking about soybeans right now. Cool. Okay. Good place to end it. That that really got really heated at the end there.
0: <laughs> That's like our signature. We come really close <sighs> to like this happy conclusion, and then one of us says something inflammatory, and then they're like, well... Okay, moving
1: on. Is that is that your sound for fire?
0: Um, that's sound for conflict.
1: Oh, that's my. Sound I was thinking for- like turning up the burner is like makes that. <laughs> what? Anyways, let's move on. <laughs> okay.
0: I picked a 52 Insights interview.
1: Shout out to Ari.
0: Yeah. Who you got the chance to moderate a panel.
1: Yeah. I spent a decent on... amount of time with him. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing a good job over there.
0: Yes. Yes. I agree. And he got this interview. He did this interview with Jonah Hill that was um, shared in yesterday's Make and Briefing. He grew up in L.A., I wanted to give a bit of background because it's relevant to what he talks about in the interview. He grew up in LA. He started writing plays in college and then a series of fortunate events led to him beginning to act at the age of 21. And probably a lot of people know him for his comedic films, but most recently he's been in a greater variety of eclectic movies, like just on different topics, different themes. And he has just directed his first film and that's coming out soon. And that's like the subject of the interview that Ari has with him. The film is called Mid 90s and it's going to be released later this year. So the reason why I wanted to bring this up is not because like I'm some big Jonah Hill fan in particular, but I liked the story that he tells about being in acting, but actually everything that he did as an actor, he felt was leading to him being a filmmaker and being a director and a writer, and that he always wanted the most to be a writer and a director. And everything that he did previous to that just served that purpose. I think the reason why it also just related to me is because I recently listened to this episode of Akimbo, which is a podcast by Seth Godin. It's called Origin Stories. And it's about how each one of us, there's some kind of story that we tell ourselves about the way we got started on the path that we are and how you tell your origin story and then how you might want to shift away from it is worth considering. That's basically all he says.
1: I was thinking about this earlier today because we're always so consumed. I don't know. Did I say this last week? But we're always so consumed with where we are right now and not where we're going. And everyone... Sort of looks at that in that capacity. They don't ever look like, oh, are you moving forward or what Your direction is? It's just like, oh, you're here right now. Oh, you know what? You just started your brand and you'll never be successful. But the reality is like maybe they're positive traits. And like if we check back in in three, six, you know, six years from now, maybe the story is a lot different. So I find it interesting because no one really thinks about the holistic perspective of like where something is at any given point in time. And we get too caught up with it. Like honestly, it's, I, I've had to stop myself too, more so because I've been on the flip side where you look at something, and you're like, shit, that's really bad. But honestly, they're trying and it's like the first thing they've ever put out. Why destroy them before there's a chance to even maybe build a narrative, build like some sort of path. And I think that's really important. Like we're so hypercritical these days that you're, you're not even looking at any sort of silver lining and like not to say that you can't be critical but you just need to be fully aware of like the whole sort of situation so i'm i wondered like it's probably hard to say maybe he knows better than anyone else but i'm just curious if like at points in time like he saw this happening or if it was a retrospective yeah actually everything i did every movie i did up until this point was actually something that push me more towards what I'm doing now.
0: When you read the full interview, it does kind of sound retrospective, like looking back on my career. This has all led to me having a unique voice as a director, but he does say at the start that writing and directing was the first thing he wanted to do, but he chose, or I don't know if he chose or not, but like that he started acting. And then the interview doesn't really go into it, but it kind of seems like, Through all of the acting, he was like eventually trying to find his way back to writing and directing. And maybe it's not like along all of those years because it's like, what, 14 years, I guess, total since he started acting and then actually directing his first film. Maybe not at every moment was he like, how does this serve me to directing? But it's kind of like a curve.
1: How does this relay back into your own life?
0: I was thinking about what story do I tell other people or tell myself about who I am now. Two items that I wanted to just link like this interview with Jonah and then this episode that I listened to of Akimbo. And Jonah, he has this origin story. He says, I'm just going to read a quote from the interview. He says, I'm very sensitive. And so sometimes when you're sensitive, especially when I was so young, I would get hurt really easily and then I would come off as mean. It's kind of hard to put yourself out there, especially when you grow up in front of everybody and makes all your dumb mistakes in front of everybody. So this is kind of like his origin story that he's telling that when he was younger and he started acting, the incident is that people or the press were mean to him or he perceived as mean to him. And he like became a jerk to them. Like he says that pretty much. And now he's shifting course in a way like he's, making decisions to not let that be um how his path continues. Yeah. And so I was thinking about, you know, what story do I tell myself? And I think one of the stories that I tell about why I am the way I am is I was always interested in art from a young age and knew really early on that all I wanted to do was design. And in reaction to that, like that's all I've ever pursued. But it feels like in this last year that I've made a shift in course without really intending that to happen.
1: What is that shift?
0: This shift towards not doing design, doing things that, doing all kinds of other things that are not design, like doing this podcast and writing and illustrating and doing production work. And do you know what I mean? Just yeah. a whole bunch of other things that are not The primary thing that that I thought thought I was like always going to be doing.
1: Is it a retrospective sort of look on, hey, I wasted my time or it's more like you can't really ever know because what you think you enjoy is going to be different at every stage of your life.
0: I think what I'm talking about goes back to what you were saying about how you can't just look at an outsider or look at some third party and say, hey, that's really bad because you don't know what stage you're at, which... Um, Alec included in one of the introductions to the briefing when he mentioned Bezod's metaphor, I yeah. guess of
1: when Be- you're cycling. Bezod being a uh, Macon member, mm-hmm. someone that works a Slack and does a lot of research.
0: And he made this metaphor that when you're cycling and you pass someone else on your route, you can't say they're slow or I'm fast because maybe they were cycling for three hours and you just started, or yeah. maybe they have an injury and you don't, you just don't know. Right. And so, Um, thinking about those things though, in relation to yourself, I find it hard because it's hard to get a bigger picture on your own life. Do you feel this way?
1: No, I don't because you get to a certain point where you just realize that, hey, you know what, as much as you think you know yourself, different things are going to influence you in a certain way. So you're basically there to manage the internal and external forces. So once you become accustomed to that, it doesn't really matter. But it's like
0: like when you look at yourself, I don't think you can see your own trajectory as clearly as you can when you look at someone else.
1: Yeah, because there's going to be biases whatnot. But then who's who's to say someone else's external view is the correct one?
0: But that's a lot of what we do at Macon with our stories is to sit down with someone for an hour, two hours, and then draw some kind of line in their life.
1: Correct. So I'm, what I'm saying is that it depends on like the goal of this sort of like exercise, right? Like some people are they trying to figure out X, Y, Z about themselves? I, I personally look at it as like this one thing where, you know, I look back at the work we do and sometimes it's really about a documentation about a point in time in culture because you could interview someone today and interview with them again in 10 years. And I can almost guarantee the answers will be different. Right? So that's to me is like a snapshot of relevancy today that you will always understand. This is a representation of this sort of fluid thing that is culture. But I think that you have to come to terms with the fact that nothing, it's even going back to the whole thing we're talking about. Like no one thing operates in a vacuum. Like trade tariffs are going to affect a bunch of people. So will the creation of a performance running shoe in light of sports need to reinvent itself. Did you pick this under any basis of like having a curiosity about your own trajectory?
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, like I think Jonah Hill's a smart guy and he's,
1: you have to be, to be a comedian too.
0: And he is honest in this interview. And I think it, it is interesting just as a read because he doesn't give a lot of interviews. And this one is um, a fair size. And it's interesting to capture him at his this moment in his life where he's shifting from acting to directing and basically just wants to pursue directing. But I did pick this because I just surveyed like all of the business items that we publish and didn't really feel like talking about any of them. And then this one was more related to myself, just my own personal
1: thinking lately. Good place to wrap things up.
0: Yeah, that's a good place to wind things up. If you are interested... Wind things
1: up or wind things down?
0: Oh, wind things down. Sorry. Clearly too much in my head. Um, That is a good place to wind things down. If you are interested in learning more about Macon and reading our stories, which are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can head over to macon.com.
1: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.